Well, a happy Tuesday night, everyone, and welcome in another edition of This Week in Hockey. As Joe Vitale, Alex Ferrario, we roll along here in the offseason for the St. Louis Blues, but still hockey being played. As we saw last night, the Tampa Bay Lightning officially eliminated the Boston Bruins. The Colorado Avalanche have stayed alive, and later on tonight, you got the Islanders in action who can eliminate the Philadelphia Flyers, and you got the Vegas Golden Knights who could be eliminated by the, uh, or could eliminate the Vancouver Canucks. So, Joe, first things first, man, have you bought into the postseason yet? You know, a little bit. A little bit. I'm, my, my blues and uh, my wounds are healing from the blues loss, but uh, I'm a fan. I mean, I'm a fan like you, Alex, and a lot of people still out there. I'm enjoying watching these games, and you know, I know we're going to talk to John Kelly here in a little bit. I'd be interested to see what he says. But boy, these Dallas Stars—they just—they're up and down, and they're all over, and they've been the biggest surprise to me. But a lot of fun to watch, nonetheless. And I thought Ben Bishop, the St. Louis native, was going to come in there last night and do a job, and uh, just didn't work out well for him. But uh, that's been a fun series for me. Have you seen the the end of Ben Bishop? And look, I, I love the guy. He's been one of my favorites to watch. But watching him get into the lineup last night where you thought it was just the way that the Dallas Stars were playing and Anton Hudobin was the one that seemed to be the guy who was closing out the opposition. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I know Rick Bonus has got a he's got a big decision here coming up for this next one. I mean, but you look at last night's game, Alex. I mean, I forget the guy's name off top. Is it Hutchinson? Hutchinson, yeah. Hutchinson, the third goalie. Who was in Boston's system with Anton Hudobin a few years ago. Exactly. And then you look at the Colorado bench. Their fourth goalie was actually in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who's only played like I think like two National Hockey League games. They brought him back in a week ago, given everything that kind of is going down uh, there in Colorado with Grubauer. Uh, so, you know, you look at the matchup last night, Colorado's third goaltender versus your number one, Ben Bishop. He's healthy, and the, and the Dallas Stars are trending up. I mean, it's a, it's a no-brainer. I would have put so much money down in Vegas if I would have saw that matchup earlier. But it just did not pan out that way. Five goals. Jeez Louise for the Colorado Avalanche. They came humping. Five in the first period. Like, to yeah. me, to me, I think at that point, like, Colorado might have just been woken up. And, like, yeah. like Dallas missed that opportunity to just eliminate them when they could. Now, I'm not saying Colorado can fight their way back because it's still 3-2 right now. But Colorado looked like a much different team, and they've just been playing with bad goaltending. Well, Alex, we see it a lot in hockey where you bring in your backup or your third goaltender and the team just goes on a, on a run. And I think that there is something mentally going on with a team that can have a backup or a third goalie or a rookie goaltender like we saw a couple of years ago with Jordan Bennington in Philadelphia. You know you don't have your guy in net, and you know as a team you got to tighten things up severely on the back end. you got to be very good defensively to give this young guy a chance. And I thought that's what we saw last night in Colorado. So uh, some certainly some great hockey out west, and uh, but I think the, the – Probably the game to talk about is the first team now to advance into the conference finals in the Tampa Bay Lightning. What a what another exciting one that was last night. Double overtime. Tampa Bay has got to be the team that when you go into overtime with them, because they were the team that played the, what, six overtimes yep. with Columbus. Columbus. they got to be the team that when you go into overtime with them, you're thinking, we should have ended this in regulation. Like, it, it's yeah. something you don't want. Like, I go back to last season where the Blues, remember where they started that turnaround, and that was the overtime game that they played with Tampa where Braden Shea right. scored that goal. Overtime. But Vasilevsky was a stud there. So, like, Tampa's a team that when you get into overtime in the playoffs, I, I mean, it, it it feels like you're at the disadvantage because that's where Tampa thrives. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited that Tampa's having success. I really am, and... You know, last week when we were kind of giving out our reasons why and why we would not like to see a team win, for me, my, my reason for Tampa Bay was that I just like how they play the game. I think it's an entertaining way to, yeah. to watch hockey. And I know it's defensively, it's all over the place. John Cooper must be, you know, growing grays and losing sleep based <laughs> off of how he sees Kucherov and Steven Stamkos play defense at times uh, and Shattenkirk as well. But, you know, from, from a viewer's perspective and for a growth of the game, I love the way Tampa plays. They play the run and gun. They're, they're not afraid to turn the puck over. The, the coach does not reprimand these players for turning the puck over. He wants them to be hockey players. He wants them to go over the boards and make a hockey play. And, and I love that. And, and, then, you know, and then the way that it ended last night, of course, you know, with Pat Maroon net front, and I actually stayed up for that game and watched it. And I, Alex, I don't know about you, but I, I felt that it went off his inside of his knee. I did too. And I thought we were looking at like just a flash of what happened last year versus the Dallas Stars. You know the part where I was like, okay, that had to have hit Maroon was the way he reacted to that going yes, in. Yes, that's what and I like, thought. And like you're excited no matter what, but the way he reacted to that goal 
looked very similar to the way he reacted to him scoring the goal against the Dallas Stars in the second round last year. I always look at the reaction. Yeah. You know, and like when Curbs is calling the goal on a game and and I think it may have been tipped. I just go right to the reaction of the player. And and Pat kind of had this shocked, surprised look that, hey, everyone come to me. And everyone just kind of went right to Victor Hedman. <laughs> and it was kind of funny. But, you know, I, I couldn't be happier for Pat. And you know what? Listen, this is what Tampa Bay realized that they, they were deficient in last mm-hmm. year. I mean, I think it was you, Alex, last week that talked about Joe Sackick and the Colorado Avalanche, and what a wonderful job he did in the offseason to bring in Nazem Kadri. Um, you're looking at Don Skoy, uh, Burakovsky, a lot of, lot of depth players because Colorado lacked depth. Uh, and you just make the same ar- argument, I think, for Tampa. Yeah. Last year they get bounced in the first round by Columbus, a huge upset, probably the upset of last year's postseason. And, you know, they, they took a good look around their locker room and they realized what they missed. Pat Maroon's not going to bring any speed. He's probably not going to bring you great numbers. But they missed some of that. They miss some of that bite and that jam and that extracurricular and the mouthing off to the players and, and getting back at the refs and the big body in front, hard to take the puck away from in corners. And you know what? They went out, they got the big rig, and, man, looking at it now, it's it's paid off big dividends for them. He does that better than anybody in the game today, I feel like, is park himself in front of the net. Like, I was watching that game last night, Joe. He knows when to go to the front of the net, but he also knows when not to go to the front of the net. Like, you'll see him kind of swirl around the net. He'll play on the outside. He'll play in the face-off circle. But sometimes he won't park himself there. He'll yeah. let the play kind of create itself. But when he goes to the front of the net, like we saw in that overtime, but it was the shift before that game-winning goal where he got there and he parked himself right in front of Vasilevsky, got the rebound, and tipped it right into Vasilevsky's pad. He's one of the best at that. He reminds me a lot of what Johan Franzen used to do with Mm -hmm. Detroit or Tomas Holmstrom used to do. You know, yeah, Pat, Pat is such a special player in the sense that, you know, he, he understands the timing of when to go to the net, like you said, but also he understands that, it requires a lot of energy for defensemen to try to take the puck away from him and, and to defend against. So what I mean by that is we saw here with, with Robert Thomas and Tyler Bozak, when, when Pat's got the puck in the corner, he's okay just hanging on to it right. because he's fine. He's not wasting much energy with it. But who is wasting energy are the two guys behind him, the defensemen, the centermen from the Ottawa centers or whoever they're playing, you know, trying to pop his hips and work around his big body to try to get the puck. I mean, those are the things that they, they require a lot of energy. So Pat is the expert at the old rope-a-dope method where he's going to wear those guys down. And he knows it's going to require a lot of energy to defend against him. And with 20, 30 seconds, if he can hang on in the corner and then maybe get a line change. I mean, that so many of the shifts last year for Ryan O'Reilly and Vladimir Tarasenko I know they got the points and they got the glory, but they were set up from sheer just down low, grinded out mentality from Pat Maroon just to wear a team's defense down, making Carlson play in the D zone, making McAvoy and Krug play in the D zone. And then when you do that, it kind of they just very they lose a lot of interest in the game. But I don't know about you, Alex, and I know you love him too, but I'm really just happy to see Pat, yeah. you know, and he's one of the reasons why I think that I would like to see the Tampa Bay go all the way. Yeah, there's two teams right now that I'm rooting for, and it's Tampa and Vegas, mostly because of the two guys on each side. Shattenkirk's another one that we forget Deuces, to talk about. Yep. I mean, he was such a good guy to the media, and I specifically remember, especially for me, who was only two years into this job, and asking questions, and he would sit there, and he would listen, and he would talk, and he'd have fun. You respect guys like that, but on the other side is Reeves. And look, Ryan Reeves right now, I think he's taking the league by storm for the way that he's playing. Really Vegas is, Joe. I don't know if you saw that article by Thomas Drance on The Athletic, but he put it out there basically stating that Vegas is the nastiest, meanest team in the playoffs right now. For the way that they chirp, for the way that they can get into the other team's head, and we just saw Ryan Reeves kind of chirping Travis Green on the bench. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a team that knows how to play to the strengths of their system. And they're a heavy team, but they know that if they can get the other team off of their game, that's where they can pounce. Yeah, you know, they remind me, Alex, of the 2011 Boston Bruins. Like, they were they were kind of like that's bullies. You remember yeah, that? Like, that's a good point. Horton, Lucic, uh, who was their fighter at the time? Uh, Thornton, Sean yeah. Thornton. I mean, even even Marchand, I mean, to some degree. Uh, Ferentz, Andrew Ferentz on the Tyler back. Sagan, Tyler Young, Sagan. Zdeno Chara. You know, they were just bullies, and they were kind of – they had a great culture. You know, I remember going – and back in 2013, during that lockout, we went to New York. All the teams were represented at the Marriott there at Times Square in a huge convention hall, trying to figure out, you know, the 50-50 split and the revenue share, whatever, right? 
And the Boston Bruins, they just were the one team I remember that really stood out. Every every player had like a sleeve tattoo or double sleeve <laughs> tattoos. Uh, Gary Bettman's talking, or I think it was uh, Don Fair's talking, and they're not even paying attention. They're joking, like making spitballs and making a mockery of it. But they, again, they just won the cup a couple years prior, and they have this, this amazing kind of cool culture of just bad boys. And now to tie that in with Vegas, I kind of see the same kind of attitude in Vegas, I mean, you mentioned Ryan Reeves. They have some just big bullies there on the fourth line that can throw their body around uh, for number one. But but not even just physical guys. Mark Stone. I don't know if there's a guy in the league that celebrates harder than Mark Stone when he scores a goal, but but they love it. I mean, they love the energy that it brings to the game. You look at Schmidt on the back end, another personality. Max Pacioretty, he, he's a hated guy in this league, kind of like David Perron in some yeah. degree. Uh, maybe not quite like like David Perron, but Max Pacioretty is a guy that he just he rubs players the wrong way. He gets in their face. He's not afraid to chirp. And I tell you what, man, I, I love the Vegas Golden Knights. I love I love Pete DeBoer. I love the, the, the transition for coaching. And for Vegas, man, I think just seeing what Marc-Andre Fleury has gone through in his entire career, not to mention the personal stuff of losing his father earlier this year. Robin Leonard comes in, he gets bumped, but he's also playing pretty good games right now as he's being subbed in. So a lot of great personalities on that Vegas team, and I, I just love their attitude. I love their snarl. If it's Tampa and Vegas, I don't know about you, Alex, but to me that's that's the cup final I'll be most excited yeah, about. Yeah, that's an ideal final. You know, speaking of Marc-Andre Fleury, I'm rooting for him mostly because of what happened with his agent tweeting out that picture, which yeah. everyone knows about right now. Alan the, Walsh. Alan Walsh put the picture out of basically a sword going through Marc-Andre Fleury, which it, it was one of those things that it takes away from Marc-Andre Fleury, and I only know him from talking with you, but seeing how he has adapted to Vegas and how everyone loves playing for him that kind of tweet takes away from the locker room but for Flurry to come in and just go out there and perform for his team that felt really good I was rooting for him I am too and he's the one player that the kids always you know ask me hey who's the greatest guy or the nicest guy you played with and you know I, I tell kids about the times that he he always helped pick up pucks at the end of practice and I think that it's such a, it's such a small thing but it goes a long way with the younger players and and I think creating a culture in an organization, you know, his ability at the end of a skate after taking pucks religiously to bend down on knees, pick up pucks, and to be a part of the whole group and be a part of the team, you know, that that stands out to me about him. And and the other thing that you see the way he competes in the games, he's so athletic and flexible, and he, he seems like he's never out of a save. But I tell kids this too, you know, you should see the way he practices. He practices that all the time. We'll be doing a drill where it's a warm-up drill and the guys are going around the horn and shooting and it's, it's a continuous drill, right? 99% of the goalies will take a shot, maybe a rebound, and then they're already thinking the next shooter. Mm-hmm. Mark will stick with it until you're in the corner on your 18th shot and just to make sure he either <laughs> smothers it or clears it. Meanwhile, three guys are literally shooting in an empty net. But his mindset is, I would rather stick with one shooter until and see that through then just continue to be peppered with shots right in front of me and and I think that competitive edge that is created in practice easily translates into games a final one for you Joe before we take a break and we're going to talk with John Kelly in our next segment out of the seven teams right now remaining and then of course with Tampa advancing who in your eyes looks like a Stanley Cup champion because at this point last year we kind of could tell that the Blues were playing Stanley Cup championship hockey you know I I it sucks for me to say this, but I, I don't know why, but I just, the way the New York Islanders are playing, I'm with you. I hate it. Yep. I hate it so much because they're so, <laughs> the games are so boring. I hate it. But, but they're just nothing against them. They're, they're, they don't get, give up nothing, yep. like completely nothing. And Lou Lamarillo, the new GM, I remember that I think it was 95 Devils, that they did the same thing. Just that boring, neutral zone trap give you nothing uh, they got these fast forwards that are very opportunistic they'll just wait 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 and all of a sudden they'll smack you and it's it, i don't know man <laughs> them them in vegas to me i think tampa as much as i would like to see them win i think just they are just so loosey-goosey i don't know if they can really contain it and really lock it in defensively so that's what makes me nervous i'm always been a believer alex defense wins championships and, yeah. and right now the new york islanders just they just are the epitome of that i mean it's so it's so eerie how they have the goaltender that's coming through sergey varlamov right now and thomas grice kind of back and forth you have a young defenseman group with a couple of veterans but you'd have this group of forwards that just go 
all out every time yeah. they have the the ice to them, and it's just it seems like it's something that you can't stop. So I mean, I'm in the same boat as you. The New York Islanders look like a team right now that they're the ones that need to be beat when it comes to a Stanley Cup championship. Yeah, I think I got Cal Clutterbuck too. Cal Clutterbuck. God, he bugs me. Does he? Yeah. But every team needs one. Ryan Everyone Reeves. Needs, you got him. The, the Cal Clutterbuck effect. That's yes. Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll take a break and welcome in the great John Kelly of Fox Sports Midwest. He joins us to talk NHL playoffs and what could happen with Alex Petrangelo. So we'll get into that with JK next here on 101 ESPN. Back in here on a Tuesday night, this week in hockey rolls along, along with Joe Vitale, I'm Alex Ferrario, and we welcome in the great John Kelly of Fox Sports Midwest, of course, the TV play-by-play man for the St. Louis Blues. Get to catch up with J.K. How are you tonight, sir? I'm doing great. How are you guys tonight? Hey, John, I just had to ask you, because I'm really starting to feel the traveling blues right now with not being able to be with the blues on the team, the flights, the hotels. What what aspects... What aspect of the traveling and, and doing your job and what you do do you miss the most? Well, you know, the best part is the games. Joey, I think it's pretty obvious. You know, the, the prep work and talking to people, it's it's a lot of fun and challenging at times. But, you know, once the puck drops at 7 o'clock or 7.10, whatever it is, uh, that's the best part for me of the job. But as far as the other things on the periphery, you know, I miss the people, Joey. You know, you go to these cities for so many years – and you, you make friends and, you know, you see each other maybe two or three times a year, whether it's fellow broadcasters or, you know, old coaches you know or things like that. So it's the friends and the people that you make in the business, to me, that makes it so special. Well, I got to ask both of you guys because there's some big news out of Massachusetts this week, uh, the Fours Bar. I'm, I'm assuming you guys are familiar with that, correct, in Boston? I've been there a few times, yeah. <laughs> so they're closing down now. Are they? Yeah, so oh. pandemic's hitting all kinds. Of, and I know Boston's one of your favorite places, Joe. It was. Uh, the Forest Bar is great, but I think still the best has been that Monica's down at the north end. And I just remember that first, John, you probably remember as well, that first you know, week there, we were in Boston for games one and two in the Stanley Cup final. The weather had just turned, Alex, for for Boston, the kind of that springtime mm-hmm. breeze. We had a light jacket, and we were right out there along those cobblestone streets right by the north end, and we were heading to dinner with Bernie and J.K. and Panger, and, and we had a great Italian dinner there at Dolce Vita. And you know, I, I'm like, John, you know, I, I truly, I miss <laughs> I miss the, the dinners out, the, the beers, the get-togethers, the happy hours, and ultimately calling games, but you do, you do, you know, create such great relationships on the roads with these guys. So, J.K., let me ask you about the postseason so far because uh, we'll get into the Blues in just a bit, but uh, the teams that are still playing, we've already seen one team advance to the conference final, and, of course, that's the Tampa Bay Lightning. I'm just curious of your thoughts watching Pat Maroon advance once again in double overtime. Must be a, a specialty for him, but watching Pat Maroon advance to another conference final with a team that you are seeing the effects of what he brings into that locker room. Well, I think that he did a great job on that goal last night. And, you know, I was watching the game like I'm sure you guys were. I thought it might have hit Pat, and wouldn't that have been something? Of course, it didn't hit him, but that would have been pretty cool for him to score um, an overtime goal to get his team into the third round in back-to-back years. It probably had never been done that in NHL history. But as it was, it wasn't his goal. It was Hedman's, but he made the play. And, you know, he didn't play. I didn't see the game sheet, guys, but – um, you know, I know they only dressed 11 forwards, and then Kucherov got hurt. Um, so they were, you know, they were using three lines and one one extra player. So I don't know how many minutes Pat played. Um, but to me, whenever he was on the ice, and he started a lot of his shifts in the offensive zone, he was very effective. I mean, what he does so well, as we know, is he, he plays so well below the goal line, he's hard to get the puck from, and he goes to the net. And that's what resulted in the game-winning goal. So I'm really happy for Pat, and you know, now that the Blues are out, I'd love to see Pat win another Stanley Cup ring. That would be fantastic. John, you know, I'm good friends with Pat, and when he didn't resign here, and I asked him about it, and simply put, he just said Doug Armstrong didn't offer him a contract. And I thought that at the time, when he moved on to Tampa, I said, okay, you know what, we're going to have Sammy Blay. We'll have a big body to fill in that third-line spot somewhere who can replace Pat Maroon. Not saying he's completely replaceable, but I thought we could find a spot to fill that void. Now looking back, given what the Blues went through this year 
and now seeing Pat Maroon going back to the conference final, uh, do you do you think that he is a player that is probably more missed or less missed than you kind of perceive when that move happened last summer? Well, I think you have to put things in perspective, Joey, and I, I know that you know what happened is that the Blues had a lot of injuries. So, I mean, I think if they're healthy, I think that they would have beaten Vancouver, not to take anything away from the Canucks. Um, but, you know, physically the Blues were not the same team that they were a year ago. Um, now, having said that, if Maroon was on the team and the Blues had the injuries they had to Tarasenko and Steen and, you know, Blay was nicked up, things like that, he obviously would have helped. But I think if the Blues were healthy, I think that, you know, they had enough scoring. But there's no question that losing Pat Maroon and losing Edmondson, they lost some, some, some beef and some physicality. Um, you know, would that have been the difference in the Vancouver series? I don't know. Uh, but no question, Pat has been a very effective player for Tampa. And that's what they were missing last year when they got swept by Columbus. They didn't feel they had enough beef, and they've added some um, this year, including Pat Maroon, and he's done a great job. With the beef, John, do you also feel like that the Blues lacked that uh, locker room presence or that bench presence that Pat Maroon provided because we even saw it in the Boston series with Tampa. He was getting under the skin against all of those players, but he was also keeping that bench very light, which we saw in St. Louis. Yeah. You know, that's probably a better question for Joey because he played. Um, But, you know, a lot of the things that Pat does, he does on the ice and on the bench. And obviously as a broadcaster, I don't know. Now my partner, Darren Pang is between the benches a lot. And he said that he was one of the best he's heard as far as the, the talking is concerned. And I know he got under the skin of, of the Bruins and also uh, the Winnipeg Jets at times. So, you know, that's part of the game, you know, as you guys know, is is the talking and the chirping. And, and maybe the best ever was assistant coach Steve Ott. He was, <laughs> he was really good and really funny. Um, a lot of what he said we probably can't repeat. The same with Pat Maroon. But I'm, I'm sure that the Blues missed that. He was a he was a real character and and I think that you need that um, on the locker room and in the locker room and on the bench as well. John, seeing Tampa Bay moving on to the conference final, the other three spots uh, still up in the air. And Alex and I we were out with Chris last week on this show and we kind of threw out our, our I guess our most desirable Stanley Cup champions this year and maybe our least desirable of the teams left. So I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Of all the teams, I think there's seven, if I do my math right correctly, uh, seven teams left. John, who would you, as a fan, I know I know you're a diehard Blues through and through, but as a fan, what's one team, whether you like a player on the team or a coaching staff or the city or just the way they play, what's one team you'd love to see win this year and then maybe one team to end, maybe not so much? Um, probably Tampa Bay. Um, you know, I know John Cooper pretty well. Actually, I was the original uh, voice of the Lightning. I don't know if you know that, Joey, but when they started as an expansion team in 92, I got the job. I was there for three years. So I still have a few friends that, that are with the organization from day one. And I like the way they play. They're, they're a fun team to watch. Uh, obviously, they need Kucherov to come back in, in the third round. Uh, you know, John Cooper said this morning he wasn't sure. Um, but hopefully optimistic. So that's a team I'd like to see win. The team that I just don't enjoy watching play because of their style is the Islanders. And, you know, Barry Trotz is a great coach. They have some very good players. But I just don't enjoy that type of style. It sort of goes back, and, and Lou Lamorello is the general manager, to the days of the Devils when they trapped and they checked and things like that. Now, you know, is it effective? Yes, it is if you have the right players and the right system and the right coach. Um, but I just don't enjoy that type of hockey. So I guess if you had to ask me and put me on the spot, I would say that the team I don't want to see win is the Islanders. Of the team still playing, John, and again, we're talking with John Kelly of Fox Sports Midwest TV play-by-play man for the St. Louis Blues. Of the teams remaining, John, who's impressed you the most with their play? Um, you, you know, I'd say the surprise team for me is Dallas. Um, the thing to me that's really stood out is a couple of things. Is Gurionov. Um, has come up and done a really good job for Dallas, a young player. And, and Pavelski and, and Corey Perry ha- have been better than they were in the regular season. And, and that's what I thought they, you know, they might be because they're, they're gamers and they're veterans, and sometimes the veterans don't really get engaged until late in the season in the playoffs. So they're a team that intrigues me. I, I think that if they could close out Colorado, they, they could do some damage. But – to me, right now, the two best teams, obviously, to me, would be Tampa and, and Vegas. Vegas is a team that 
you not only do they have four lines that can do damage, they have great speed, and their defense really loves to join the rush, and they can really skate, and they have good goaltending. So, you know, if I had to say right now who would be in the final, uh, my money would be on on Vegas and Tampa Bay for the final this year. Yeah, I would agree with that one, especially watching how both of those two have played. John Kelly, final question before we, before we let you go, and uh, kind of a question that everyone seems to be asking in St. Louis now is what's going to happen with Alex Petrangelo? Joe and I are going to talk about it in our next segment, but just curious your thoughts of what you think will happen and what you think should happen for the Blues. Well, how about if I answer what I hope happens? I That's like that. That he re-signs. Because I don't have a crystal ball, and I don't know what, you know, I'm not on the inside for the negotiations, obviously. Um, but I think really it comes down to this. If if Alex wants to remain a Blue and to perhaps win another cup or two with the St. Louis Blues, I think that he can do that. If he wants to get every last dollar possible on the open market, then more than likely he's going to have to go somewhere else because the Blues are up against the cap, and obviously they want to win. And, you know, there's no point in, in, in giving Alex a max contract or whatever it might be and then having to trade four or five players because then you probably aren't as dangerous a team. So I think it's really the ball's in his court. If he wants to stay and maybe give up some dollars, then this would be a great fit and he could retire here. If he wants to get every dollar possible, then he probably has to go somewhere else. John Kelly, it's great to catch up with you, sir. It's great to hear your voice. I'm sure you're enjoying the little bit of off season, but uh, wishing we were still in this postseason. Looking forward to the season starting back up, and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. All right, Alex. Thank you. Enjoy. We'll see you around Kirkwood, my friend. You got it, John. Love seeing you across Kirkwood. You and your wife. We'll go for Caldies for coffee one of these mornings. Sounds great. That's John Kelly. He's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. We are back. Let's get into a little Alex Petrangelo conversation next here on 101 ESPN. Back in here on a Tuesday night this week in hockey. He's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. Big thank you once again to John Kelly for hopping on with us tonight. And stay tuned because coming up at 7 o'clock, we got some NBA playoff basketball uh, coming your way here on 101 ESPN. So the playoffs continue tonight, 7 o'clock. That action starts right here on 101 ESPN. So, Joe, let's talk, uh, let's talk a little Petro because from now until we get an announcement from Doug Armstrong and the Blues that he's either re signed or we hear that he is not going to be coming back it's going to be the only thing that's talked about from st louis hockey fans right now and really st louis sports fans for when you think of of how big of a person alex petrangelo is to the st louis blues team and i think at this point a lot of people are looking at the scenario saying why hasn't this been resolved already? And before we ask, answer that question, I want to play Carlo Koliakovo, who, of course, is the former St. Louis Blue. He's a host up in Canada, um, and he's very close with Alex Petrangelo. And he put a tweet out a couple of days ago talking about how he's so surprised that this hasn't gotten done and things need to get better for the Blues and Petrangelo to come to a resolution. And he was on with Rivs and BK on Monday to talk about that. So take a listen. You know, you got a guy like Alex Petrangelo who been a day wonder there you know exactly who he is what you're going to get from him and you're a year removed from winning the stanley cup help me understand why he's not signed to me it makes absolutely no sense um and you know i don't know how this is going to play out um i know alex is a really good friend of mine um, i always told him right from day one i said hey listen man you're a smart guy you know what you want but I am here for you if you need advice on anything or if you just want somebody to, to bounce something off. Um, I haven't gotten to that situation yet, but obviously in seeing the way it's playing out, it doesn't make any sense to me, and I honestly don't understand it. So I found this really interesting quote from him. <clears throat> when you look at it, it um, you, you see the Justin Falk trade, which, look, that's kind of the the, the – that's the state of the NHL. When you make a big trade like that, you put an extension with it. Marco Scandella, who fit in here seamlessly and without Jay Bomeister, made a lot of sense. But when you look at Petrangelo and you're thinking, why is this not locked up yet? That's the one where the biggest question mark comes up. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're still holding our breath on this one. And, and I understand, you know, Carlo's frustration. And, you know, I think this this is a... This was an ongoing negotiation for a while now, and I think like all negotiations, they, they're they up and they're down, and they come down to the 11th hour, and truthfully, and I think that this is what this one's going to come down to. And 
both sides are, are pushing a little bit, pulling a little bit, and and they're trying to call each other's bluffs. And why wasn't it done this summer? I mean, you know, I, I can't speak for Doug. I can't speak for Alex's representatives. But, uh, you know, clearly I don't think the number was probably where they wanted it. I think when that Roman Yossi deal happened in November that that was the number that he was trying to get to. And, you know, when, when Doug Armstrong signed Justin Falk because you brought him up, you know, the thing to me that really stood out was, you know, we're looking at a young man who is in his prime, and I've always felt as a GM that a defenseman's prime is, you know, between, I think he said between 27 and 32, mm-hmm. or 20, 33, somewhere, somewhere in there's like a five, six-year window, late 20s, early 30s. That was an interesting comment, considering the fact that Alex would have to sign an extension when he's 30 years old. Yeah. And if he's looking at a Roman Yossi eight-year, $9 million contract, forget the money, it's more of the year, the yeah. term. You know, so then you're, you're telling me that you think that his prime is in the first half, actually for less than the first half, only three more years, and then you have five more years of maybe cap hell. So, again, whether he was speaking on just Justin's behalf and maybe Alex doesn't fall into that um, category as far as maybe his, his prime, I'm not sure. But I also think that Doug's not going to you know put this team behind the eight ball and, and run into cap hell. Um, so that's one side. Yeah. But I don't know, Alex, the other side of me is just – you got to figure out a way to sign them because you're a much better team with them. You're you're way more lethal, and this window is more wide open. And keep your eyes on the prize here, and the prize is the cup. Yeah. Can you get another one? Okay. So if you can get another one, what player is going to give you the best chance? And to me, it will be Alex Petrangelo. There's not a better player on the market right now than that. So if they figure out the term, they figure out the money. You got to figure out a way to sign him because at the end of the day, put personal stuff aside. It's about this organization. It's about the team, and this team is far better with him than without him. It's funny. I'm curious because you were a part of a team with captains like a Sidney Crosby and Shane Doan. How much would that have affected a locker room, Joe? If if there was an ongoing contract negotiation of if this guy's going to be back or if he's not going to be back in an off season. Because I think back to the Blues when David Backus was let go and people were like, well, what's going to happen? And there were guys that can be captains, you know, Petrangelo, Steen. There were players there. This one, it seems a little different. There are guys that can be captains, but it's not to the length of a guy who has been there from day one with your team like Alex Petrangelo has. I think that's, it's, it's an interesting point based off of the personalities that I've observed and being around this team for two years. I think they have the leadership qualities to be okay. Mm-hmm. I think of a guy like Ryan O'Reilly and Alexander Steen if he holds on one more year, which he's under contract for. Braden Shen, to me, is a he's a leader. Yeah. He, he is, right? Uh, I think Marco Scandella's got a lot of leadership qualities. Colton Pareko, although quiet, he leads by example. He's mm-hmm. kind of got that Jay Bowmeister good feel to him. Yeah. So from a leadership standpoint, I think we're okay. My concern is just from a sheer hockey standpoint, and again, I'm not taking anything away from Alex's leadership or him being a captain because he was an incredible captain, incredible leader. I just feel like we have the pieces to to continue with that. My concern with Alex and this team is you will lose just such a significant hockey player. Yeah, he's very rare, and like Carlos said right there, you know what he's gonna you're gonna get out of him. What that means is to me is he's consistent. Every year I could look at the Blues games, all the ones I've called, and I can count on one hand all the games that Alex was a no-show for or he just did not have a good night. Mm-hmm. And that and that's really hard to do. Yeah. I mean, most players are they'll have a couple duds every 10 games. He's having a dud maybe every 20 or 25. I mean, he he is just that consistent and that good in all three zones, responsible. He thinks he's got that uh, I'm two steps ahead of every player on the ice kind of mindset. And it's amazing what he can do for this team. So uh, from a leadership standpoint, I think we're okay. I think just from a hockey standpoint, we will suffer more, uh, significantly more, I think, without him. Let me play you another quote from Carlo here, Joe, and I want to get your thoughts on this as well. And this this goes to the statement of if things were to happen and Petro isn't back, this was Carlo Koliakovo's thoughts. It all goes comes down to understanding what you have and who you have. What you have in Alex Petrangelo is a number one defenseman. And who you have is who he represents himself as a player, as a teammate, as a leader, on the ice and in the community. And to me, that's irreplaceable. I mean, because these are the mistakes that you make in hockey. I, I would imagine that if Doug Armstrong were to go back, he'd probably want a mulligan on the, on the Justin Falk deal. But you did that with a hunch. 
Well, you don't you don't need a hunch here on Alex. You know who he is. You know what he's going to get you. And you you also got to evaluate the group of this team. I mean, what's where do they go next? Do they still want to compete for the Stanley Cup in the next couple of years with this core group of guys? Because if they do, you need a guy like Alex Petrangelo to do it. And if you don't, you know, what direction are you starting to take as an organization? Because what's the trickle-down effect going to be from that? That's been the question I've been asked so much, Joe. And when Carlos said that, it's it, it, it like a light bulb went above my head. The same question keeps coming up. If Petrangelo's not back, what happens to that Stanley Cup window? Mm. I don't think it closes all the way. I think it's still there because your core is still there. You still have a Pareko. You still have a O'Reilly, a Shen, a Schwartz, a Bennington. But it definitely closes in a sense in in that mindset. If it starts to close this window, you want to win as much as possible. And I think you try and figure yourself out salary-wise after the fact. Yeah, it kind of it reminds me kind of what Doug or excuse me, Craig Berube's decision for the goaltender there in game six. You know, you go with Jordan Bennington because if you're gonna lose, you're gonna lose knowing you had your guy. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe the same thing goes goes here. It's a good point. You know, maybe maybe Doug Armstrong's like, we may win, we may not win, but I can sleep at night knowing that we didn't win holding on to our guy. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, you lose if you don't win a Stanley Cup, you lose, but you lose with one of the best defensemen in the NHL. And the best defenseman on the market. And you and you yeah. can you can look yourself in the mirror and say, listen, I kept him. Uh, we went through a little bit. We're going to have to go through some cap hill here in a little bit. But we missed our window. We didn't win anymore. But I put the best product on the ice. It just didn't happen. Yeah. You know, maybe we had bad goaltending or special teams or injuries like we saw this past year. Right. You know, a lot, lot goes into winning. I'm not going to put this on Alex alone. But... You know, if you have him and you win, then you look like a genius. Well, mm-hmm. if you have him and you lose, you could still say, well, you know what? We, we still got so him. He's the best defenseman. It, it was, he's the best defenseman right yeah. now. You know, with you saying that, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is, what do you think the Edmonton Oilers thought when they made their trade of trading for Chris Pronger? They got to the Stanley Cup final. They yeah. lost. Right. But you know what? They got there. Yeah. And they sat there and said, hey, we just lost with the best defenseman in the NHL. The same thing happened with Anaheim. Anaheim trades for Chris Pronger, and mm-hmm. they win the Cup. And then Philly gets him. Philly goes to the Cup. I believe they lost to the Blackhawks, yep, correct? that's right. But you lose with the best product on the ice. And at the end of the day, you figure yourself out when you have to, mm-hmm. but you win with what you have right now. And that's the part that I'm always going to. Yeah, and I think that you know Doug must be mulling in his mind right now is what, you know, Carlos talked about the trickle-down effect. Mm-hmm. There's always a trickle-down effect. Look, look at this postseason. You lose Tarasenko. Right? Yeah. Then you have to have guys fill in that role. And then the fourth line guys have to fill in third line roles. Yep. And then third line guys go to second line. It's just everyone is going to be called upon to do more. Sometimes players can handle it and they thrive, and sometimes they just can't handle it. Sometimes it's, it's, it's beyond their boundaries. We all, have, we all have borders. We all have, you know, we go to this extent of what we represent as a player and what, what we bring to the table. And once we step outside that comfort zone, maybe we start to lack. I think that's what happened with the Blues forwards this postseason. When you lose one or two guys on the very top, then other guys have got to serve that, and then you bring in guys to serve the bottom, and everyone's kind of thrown off rhythm. Okay, so for Doug, Alex is gone. What does Colton Pareko look like as your top right defenseman? Yeah. What does Justin Falk look like as your second right defenseman? Do you feel within some growing pains of a half a season – you can get him up to speed where he will be your guy for three or four years whenever that window stays open. Or is it Colton Pareko has more work to do? We've seen spurts of greatness, but we've also seen spurts of where it kind of fell flat, maybe like this postseason, for example. Does that make you nervous? You know, if it makes you nervous and you don't think he's your guy, uh, I think that that's where you need to keep him. So to me, I think that Doug's biggest decision about where to go from here is how much trust and faith do you have that Colton Pareko will be your guy? Right. Will be your next franchise defenseman? Because you know when he's up in a couple of years, you're going to sign him to an extension if you feel that strongly about it. Yeah. Because Alex, we've both seen when Colton's at his game and on top of it and skating and shooting and defending. I mean, he is literally unstoppable. He's one of the best defensemen in the league. But when he stops moving his feet and maybe when he gets tripped up a little bit, loses a little bit of confidence, maybe not on the power play. Then, then, you know, he's just above average defenseman. So, you know, to me, I think that that is what Doug is conflicted with right now is 
what does Colton Pareko bring and what does it look like for him to be on that top pair with a Vince Dunn or Carl Gunnarsson next season? It's interesting how this 2020 has gone, Joe, because we got <clears throat> excuse me into the bubble and we said with the goaltending decision, this will be the biggest decision of Craig Berube's career up to this point. It's not going to make or break his career, but it's the biggest decision of Bennington or Allen. And he went with Bennington, and we don't second-guess him for it. Now you get into an offseason in Armstrong's career. This is going to be the biggest decision of his career up to this point. Mm-hmm. Keep Petrangelo or go with Pareko. Yeah. And I think that's why the intrigue is surrounding this Blues team this offseason. Well, and you know, for Doug, too, listen, he's he's a bit risky. He's made risky moves, yeah. right? Backus was a risky move at the time. Backus was. You know, get rid of Paul Stastny. Yeah. Right? When the Blues were flirting with a playoff spot. You get rid of Paul, you miss the playoffs by, I think, one point that mm-hmm. year. Right? You say what you want about it, but it was risky. It wasn't It yeah. wasn't a traditional. He has a little Jim Rutherford in him where he is willing to take a risk. And I think that when you win the Stanley Cup, to me, I even become more risky. More, yeah. Because you're looking at the risks you take. I mean, you, I mean Ryan O'Reilly, he was a sought-after guy, but... Nowhere near as much as Doug Armstrong wanted him. I mean, he, and it was a risk because you look at how many teams he was a part of. Yeah. Like you're you're not a part of that many teams unless there's some type of issue. Maybe there's a problem there. He was maybe an issue in Colorado, yeah. and then he was a bit of an issue there in Buffalo. And his comments after his Buffalo season about not wanting to play and kind of lost the interest and love for hockey yeah. being there. I mean, that was a risky move, and mm-hmm. we all saw how it paid off. So maybe Doug's looking at it too, like you know, listen. This isn't maybe the biggest decision. I've made riskier moves in the past, and I feel in my gut, he's a gut guy. In my gut, this is the right thing to do, move on from him, because I think as a team, in the long haul, we are going to be better and our window is going to stay open longer, maybe without him. And I think, again, with the Stanley Cup in your resume or on your resume, uh, proving that you know these are the moves I make and it works, maybe he's just that that gutsy and ballsy to make that move again without, you know, because, again, it's coming down to – not putting your team behind the eight ball and and running some financial hell down the road. Yeah, it allows you to be risky. There's no doubt about it. Look at Jim. I mean, Jim Rutherford's a perfect example of it that uh, you just mentioned there, Joe. He's Joe Vitale. I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll take a break and come back. What's the schedule going to look like for 2020-2021 in the NHL? We had an idea. An article on ESPN.com shifted that. So we'll get into that next year on 101 ESPN. Final time here on a Tuesday night. Alex Ferrario, Joe Vitale with you this week in hockey as we'll be bringing this with you all off season up until we uh, get back into the season, which at one point, Joe, I thought we knew what 2020, 2021 was going to look like. We were told once the pandemic hit and when they were trying to get the return to play, we were told an 82 game schedule was going to happen. They want to play 82. They're going to play 82. But an article by Greg Wyshynski and Emily Kaplan at ESPN.com that came out yesterday, awesome piece if you haven't read it, it went through and talked to some top executives in the NHL about what next season could look like. And one of those is the season, Joe. They want to play an 82-game schedule, but they don't know how likely it is when you think of the season not starting until December or January. They're talking possibly 60, 65, maybe 70 games could be your season next year. Well, I think that they, for now, December 1 is the tentative, unless I'm mistaken. December 1, I believe, is the date they're projecting, with I think a camp opening up that third week in November, Hmm. which, I don't know about you, Alex, but that seems... It's a quick turnaround. That seems too quick. I yeah. mean, we're still so so much uncertainty. We're not seeing a lot of you know sports with with fans and buildings quite yet. But I think more of a mid to late January, early February is is more realistic. And I think that's what the league has to do. You know, NHL is a different sport. We don't we don't make a lot of revenue through TV deals and big sponsorship deals, right? The NHL, the bloodline, the bloodline for this sport. Um, is the revenue. Revenue is becoming very critical, and the revenue for hockey has come from the gates. People coming in those buildings, buying merchandise, you know, food, drinks, whatever. But people in those buildings is so important for hockey. It's the revenue engine. So in some ways, I think that financially you're probably going to be better off running a 65-game schedule with 50%, 75%, 90% fans versus trying to get 82 in where you know you're you have an empty building half the time because i i just don't see that working very well for the nhl financially anyway yeah it's interesting you say that because that was the other piece that they talked about in the article were, were the fans in the seats and look the nhl is not the nfl it's not major league baseball they don't prosper off of television deals they prosper off of butts in the seats and i think they put the number at about 170 175 million dollars 
that the NHL had to pay just for this bubble. So if you go into another season with yeah, if you go into another season with no fans for 60, 65 plus, I mean, you're talking about another financial mega hit to this league that could really affect the future of its progress. You know, it, I, I, again, the, the bubble thing, there's no way you can play 82 games if you stay in a bubble. Players wouldn't do it. They won't do it. You, you can't even get 82 games in. It's going to be a situation where they're going to have to figure out a way to get fans in the building safely. You know, I was doing a food drive over the weekend for the Blues uh, down there in North City, and Kyle Warman, who works for the St. Louis Blues, he kind of helps run the building, and and he told me that he's been so busy this offseason right now. They're setting up sanitizing stations. They're trying to get all digitally up to speed with the touchless goes for all yeah. the food and beverages. Uh, but And get this, too. Not only plexiglass between seats, they're actually devising seat covers, like these plastic-made really? things that you – so a seat's folded up, and three in a row, they'll actually put this cover surrounding the folded-up seat where it's just flat so no one can actually sit on it. Because that's going to be the other thing. How do you get p- people to do that responsibly? You can't have you can't have ushers constantly yelling at people for getting too close or, right. hey, those aren't your seats. Go two back over. So what they're going to do is they're, they're devising it anywhere. They're rough drafts of it having these seat covers, maybe they cover up two seats, and then you have two or three, four open, and then another two seats. Where wow. So physically people can't be together. I think that's what it's going to take. So I think fans need to get into the building uh, because without without that, I just I don't see a full season happening uh, through the bubble. Uh, but I think we're going to see a lot of different things happen. I think there's going to be a lot of new hiccups to the game, uh, as we, we can imagine. But you know, I was thinking about this the other day. In preseason, Alex, you see players and teams – they fly the morning of the game. Mm-hmm. They play the game and they come right back. Is that something we're going to see more of next year? You know, the players will be okay with it. It's probably, in some ways, it'll be better. They're less time away from families and, and from their rhythm. So if you're playing the Chicago Blackhawks on Saturday night, instead of leaving Friday afternoon, staying Friday night in Chicago and playing the Hawks Saturday and coming home after the game, you're flying up Saturday morning. Yeah, morning skate here in the morning. You fly up to Chicago, play them at 7 o'clock, or maybe it's 6 and move the times up, and then you're back home before midnight or 1 in the morning. Hmm. Uh, is there a more regional-based schedule? Can you keep it closer where Chicago, Nashville, you know, all the teams within the central Detroit, they kind of really just battle it out and we kind of switch up the conferences next year where maybe that's not a, more of a less, less of a factor. There, there's going to be some rule changes. There's going to be a lot of things, but I think the, the fans and the players will be okay with that, knowing that they can just get back to the buildings and have fans in them. I think that's a really interesting idea, Joe. I mean, especially leaving the day of, because players would be all for that. It would be early mornings, but you get home. Which For long I, days, yeah. but but it's safe. Yeah. It's a lot safer than being in a city, being in a hotel, and then bus trips in the morning. I mean, it's you, you fly, you take a bus right to the rink, you play the game. You know, I don't know if the, they can figure out a way to keep fans, you know, three or four rows back away right. from the players and from the sides of the players. So the players can come in here, they can play games, and they can get out. And then from there, it's really just more of a risk for the fans attending. And I advise people to pay real close attention to what happens from now until the end of Major League Baseball season and for the NFL season. Because I think that's going to be a template for the NHL, Joe. And they have time. You just talked about Kyle with the Blues, who's kind of already started this process. But the NFL is talking about having fans in the seats. And in this article on ESPN.com, they mentioned a progressive increase throughout the season of 50%, then to 75%, then to 95% of fans. That's going to come from, look, if baseball can go the rest of their season without any positive outbreaks and doing this traveling, and then if NFL can do it with a bigger staff and involve fans and have success – you could be looking at a December or January for the NHL saying, you know what, we can do this because we just saw these teams have success. It's just going to be responsibility on everybody's part. Yeah, you know, and, and the other thing to consider too, Alex, on top of that would be they're in a rush to get the next season going. But, you know, if it doesn't start till February and they need to do a February and another October or, or even September champion again, I, I think the league's willing to do that. Yeah. I think they're willing to go that far because I can see this only getting better. Uh, meaning with vaccines and treatments and, and protocols and procedures. So if they do need to push it back, it, it is possible. It just it may not look like hockey for a few years. That's, yeah. all, I'm, that's all I'm thinking at this point. The minors are the other thing that, that really interests me with this, Joe, because the AHL, uh, Scott Bowen, I think, is, is who's in charge of it down there, he has talked about how you know the AHL thrives off of fans in the seats, and they're already coming up with protocols so they can have them. 
but you got to have these younger players playing because otherwise it stunts the growth of the NHL team. So the yeah. AHL is going to be another area that you're really curious of what happens with them moving forward. It's it's going to be so crazy. I mean, I can almost see in some ways maybe a bubble situation for the American League where yeah. these players are getting reps and fans can get in there a little bit or or maybe I don't know, but that's that that that's hard because I'm skating a couple weeks ago and there's players I'm skating with that have gotten East Coast tryouts and American League tryouts and and these, I feel for these kids, you know, these like we're seeing college football with these athletes, you know, these players have a short window and, and this whole thing kind of has disrupted that. You know, there, there are players that who were great out of college that signed in the American League, played one or two years and then just absolutely exploded the National Hockey League scene. Chris Kunitz yeah. is one that jumps out at you, undrafted, had a great career at Ferris State, played one year in the minors and then bam, looked four cups later. So. It's a tough one. I don't think there's any easy answers right now. But you know, we talk about the trickle effect. You talk about the dominoes falling. If if the NHL can figure out this way, along with all all the other major sports, to slowly get fans, people into the buildings, and we could do it in a great, safe way where no one's getting harmed or affected by it. That's the first domino. And once you get that, then the smaller leagues, and the American League, the East Coast League, and the, the soccer, and the AAA, and all the other things will kind of fall into place from there. So it's kind of, it, to me, Alex, I don't know about you, but it, it feels like who's going to be that first major sport to yep. take that plunge and see how it goes. And everyone else is going to kind of play off that and learn from it. I mean, that's gonna, we're still learning a lot, but who's going to learn the most? And, and can we do it in a timely manner where we can see some hockey in January? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really going to come down to who's going to take that chance, whether it be baseball postseason, college football, NFL, who takes that that leap to say, okay, let's let some fans in the building and see what happens. And then that's going to lead to the NHL saying, okay, I think we can test this out. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is, you know, gosh, we can just get speedier testing. Yeah. Get the testing up to speed where you can get a turnaround within minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's maybe that's protocol for a year or two to go to sports games. You know, you have they have stations where you get tested, a quick little swab or a quick little whatever they have. Negative, go. Negative, go. It's an alley. Go to the game. You're, yeah. you're safe. You know what I mean? And gosh, if, if we could just even get that where people can feel comfortable knowing that everyone in the building is negative. Then, then it's good, but the doggone problem with the testing right now is you don't find out till three, four days later. Right, that's the part that's so intriguing about. I mean, we talk about the Blues off season, but it's really the off season of the NHL from the time that the postseason ends in October until whenever they start in January. That's where the intrigue uh, really comes through, and we'll be here with you through it all the way as we are on this week in hockey. It's only down to an hour show until the Blues are back on the ice, but Joe and I have that covered for you every Tuesday night. We appreciate you being with us this evening. Stick around because we got basketball playoffs for you coming up at 7 o'clock. But for Joe Vitale and Alex Ferrario, we'll talk to you Tuesday at 6 o'clock here for more This Week in Hockey on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN.